Welcome to Swimming with Alligators. I'm Ernest Sweat, and each episode, Alexa Benz and I give you a VC podcast from the LP perspective. You ready? Let's dive in. On today's episode of Swimming with Alligators, our guest is Sam Sadowski, a partner at 1200 VC, which is an early stage investment platform that invests in both fund managers and founders. This was a great conversation today where I really feel that Sam really incorporated all the different hats he's worn as an LP, GP, and former founder. He gave us great advice for LPs on some of the differences and opportunities if you're doing fund-level investments as well as direct investments, and some cool lessons learned from his early days investing in Climate 1.0 to now 2.0. Today on Swimming with Allocators, uh, we have the pleasure of speaking with Sam Sadowski. He's a partner at 1200 VC. which is an early stage investment platform investing in fund managers and funders, founders building companies shaping the future of humanity. The long-term vision of 1200 is to be a systematic value creator by becoming a leader at partnering with the siege stage towards regional, global, and planetary impact. Wow, that's a a huge mission. Uh, Sam, thanks for uh, joining us on Swimming with Alligators. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. So first I wanted to start off with your journey into this asset class. Sam, your background is intriguing. It has a combination of operational experience, digital marketing, and a deep understanding of the capital markets. How did this unique mix lead you to the world of venture capital, specifically with both direct and fund investments? Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of had an untraditional foray into the world of VC. Of I mean, in college, I got really into self-educating myself on, on capital markets, um, in addition to, to private markets as well. And I was fortunate enough that I had friends and family that were quite active um, in predominantly VC, some PE, but, but mostly VC. And I just spent a lot of time having a curious mind and wanting to learn more about a, what are you looking at? Like, what's what's the near frontier now? At that time, it was climate 1.0. Um, it was a lot of bio. And I basically wanted to just absorb as much knowledge as I could. Um, then, you know, I wore a bunch of hats and just career path from working in the family business to leading digital marketing at a big PE back firm um, to being a founder, which was a whole different peak into another world in and of itself. Um, I really got to understand and see how the VC played a role in not only enabling us, but also helping us with decision-making processes, whether beneficial or detrimental. Um, And as that started to wind down, um, I got a call from who's now my founding partner, Esteban, and he had this grandiose vision to build a standalone firm and asked me if I would stop what I'm doing and, and come join this journey with him and help co-build this alongside him. And right within one hour, I made up my mind and I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to dedicate the rest of my life to. And, and that's how that happened. We see a lot of founders think, oh yeah, I should head to the other side at some point and, and mm-hmm. look to put on the investor hat. What's What's the parallel with, doing direct investments and running a fund of funds? So the way I kind of view it is that, 
you're both at the end of the day underwriting for financials. You're also underwriting for human beings. And at the end of the day, this is like a human based business. I view this as a we us business, not a I you uh, business. And the interesting thing about about investors that have worn the operator hat is there's I don't know if empathy is the right word, but there's a lot more understanding like the trials and tribulations of a founder and what they have to go through um, past learnings, you know, any type of transferable knowledge set to help avoid past mistakes, get other perspectives. Um, I think as an investor, you're just better suited to empathize, understand, and work directly with founders on, on core business problems than if you've only been in the allocator hat and only cut checks. The- Sam, I had a quick question, um, Alexa. So Sam, you, we've heard a lot of like just people, GPs, who have that operator experience, and that makes that's right in line in what you said about the um, empathy or just understanding that experience. But mm-hmm. you rarely hear about allocators on the kind of LP investing in funds having that perspective. What advantage do you think that gives you when underwriting a a fund manager? When underwriting a fund manager, it just augments your ability to understand kind of how. You know, you hear the word value add tossed around a lot uh, in our industry. And there's, you know, it's a very broad spectrum. But I think at the earliest stages of investing, um, the most concrete form of that value add kind of occurs in operator to operator, especially at the pre seed. Um, that's going to be the toughest time for people to solve for things. I mean, if you're a pre seed founder, you're wearing whatever hat needs to be worn at any given time. Um, if you're not an engineer, you're going to be working with your engineers. You may be left, but no matter how you slice it, you got to wear every hat. And I think it's nice to have um, people on your cap table that have either been through that or can empathize with that and are not going to tell you how to do your job, but just be a, I don't know if safe space is the right term, but a space where you can really just ideate, bounce ideas off each other, roll up your sleeves if they have a problem that that is difficult to solve internally right now and and, and be that support system. We've got a question on how you think about monopolistic outcomes. Yeah. So um, I think it's it's relatively easy for me to sort of understand where that what that looks like when you're doing the direct Mm -hmm. direct um, company startup investments does that also come into play in selection of managers yeah i think when you're looking at emerging managers um they should be taking firm building approaches to to building you know and Look, you get a lot of people that want to scale and run the AUM game like really quickly. And I think that a lot of emerging managers outperform at their sweet spot of fund size. Could be 25, could be 50, it could be 75. Um, but their their goal is trying to build a category leader firm. You know, Whether they're hyper-specialized or generalist, they're taking the same path as a founder to capture as much market share and grow their their firm to be a tier one partner the same way a founder is growing their business um, to be a category leader and in their field. Yeah. So, so that, you know, fewer investments, more conviction mm-hmm. and and really swinging for the fences. A hundred percent. And I mean, when I 
speak to GPs, oftentimes I, I really like to dig into their vision for their firm and, and how they're going to scale their firm over time. Um, and, you know, these things are, are one thing now and then there's something else later in the future. And I think the ability to see that vision through speaks volumes to, to where their head's at as, a, as an entrepreneur themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you can get like 1.6x with T-bills right now, like yes. you really <laughs> your managers need to offer, offer mm-hmm. some, yeah. On um, differentiation, where do you come out on emerging managers' product offering of being more of a generalist versus a specialist? And specialization oh. can come out a lot of different ways. You know, talking to a number of allocators on this podcast and just, you know, um, in private conversations, there's very different views on which style they really think outperforms. For sure. I think it's, look, there's a place for both generalists and specialist um, managers. There's always going to be. Uh, I think different technological environments in terms of the innovation curve could prove advantageous both ways for the generalist that has more flexibility to really just capitalize on opportunistic opportunities, uh, as well as specialists that are so dedicated to certain verticals that they have just unparalleled knowledge in that they can do highly technical diligence where a generalist firm may have trouble conducting that type of diligence or they're going to outsource that diligence and not have the core understanding of it um i'm big on uh personally on specialist vcs for certain types of technologies i think for for really high technical hurdles um you need people that are specialized to even understand these businesses because a lot of people think they're backing something between the space of improbable and impossible where the domain expert knows that it's more probable than improbable should the science be risk. 1200 has a, a, you've been in market for a bit. Has your perspective changed since getting started? Any lessons learned um, since you all opened shop? I don't think our, our perspectives have changed. I think you need to have a degree of sensibilities around everything going on, both venture landscape, both macro. But the underlying theme is that good businesses are are built in any environment. Um, Great GPs and great firms are built in any environment. Um, There isn't a single time where opportunity is not going to be plentiful. You may have to turn over more stones to find it. Um, But that being said, the, the traditional path of, of knowing what makes good businesses, knowing what makes strong founders, uh, completely ignoring whatever is going on in the macro, um, always is going to hold true. There hasn't been a single time in history where that's been, been not the case. Um, you look at 08 and you look at the draft class of companies that came out of 08, 09, 2010, um, excellent companies. You saw this thing in the early 2000s, late 90s as well, uh, when the VC market was way more nascent than it is today. Um, but I think, yeah, you, you have to be cognizant. You always got to be learning. You're going to see things. You're going to see thematic shifts in where capital flows are going to. I don't think that you should absorb yourself in, in chasing what the, what the hottest thing at the moment is. Um, there's a place to be cognizant of it and to deploy into those, those sectors. But I don't think the, the chasing strategy is beneficial. I think removing the noise and understanding what you're good at, remembering how you know you were trained to understand businesses, how to underwrite businesses, um, 
you know, is always going to be where, where, where the real value can be extracted out of your strategy. Are, are there any untrendy categories that you see opportunity that uh, maybe there aren't as many dollars? In- um, you, you know, what's funny is that the, the narrative may differ from the actual capital flows. But if you look at things like construction tech, which are like, you know, I think are great verticals personally, like capital has stayed quite consistent even in this year across those verticals. It's not as, you know, the narrative for it is not as sexy as something like AI or something like genomics or something like, you know, that's something more frontier. But nonetheless, it has extremely high utility. Um, The people that want to be deploying into that space know there's extremely high utility. Construction is not going anywhere. It's just going to get more and more efficient over time. Uh, And I think some of the non-narrative sexy industries are, are really going to be built to last and are going to see a lot of, of steady capital flow into them. And, and you started out in climate 1.0 uh, investing. Now, now that that is the sort of one of the trendiest topics, mm-hmm. any, anything where you're, you, you've learned that lesson or uh, any, any stories from 1.0 that could be valuable yeah. in 2.0? For sure. I mean, I think that anytime there's something that's like very, very frontier and breakthrough, you're going to have adoption risk and people discount adoption risk. There's a lot of variables that go into this, which is just existing practices, viability of the actual tech, switching costs. Does it cost me more money to actually deploy this over time? Will I actually save money? Um, What are my intrinsic motivations to adopt this? Um, Is it image-based adoption? Like, I feel like I need to do this to, to, to have my image basically augmented in, in, in our favor, or is it actually going to be beneficial to the business? And I think oftentimes nascent technologies, they need a bit to play out. I mean, I looked at Climate 1.0 and it's like your two biggest winners are Tesla and First Solar. And then there was just a whole swath of companies that while they had viable technologies, they maybe weren't as viable as the story that was being um, sold, even though the technical de-risking occurred, it occurred maybe too late. Um, and I think there's been a lot of learning since then. And, and obviously technology doesn't move linearly. So just on a tech basis, um, there's a lot easier ways to deploy these things, de-risk them, pilot them quicker, faster times to pilots help a lot. I mean, back then you would have like six years before you could get to a pilot for some of these things. And when that type of CapEx gets too high, VCs stop funding it. And I think now you can have less CapEx and you can get things to market a lot quicker, de-risk things a lot quicker. Um, so the ability to trial and error is just drastically increased in terms of speed and efficiency. Now we're gonna take a quick break to speak with our sponsor. On the show today, we have an industry expert and sponsor, Rachel Waddell, Vice President of Investor Coverage at Silicon Valley Bank, a division of First Citizens Bank. Thank you, Rachel, for partnering with us on the show and being on the show today. So, Rachel, um, continuing on the great research that you all put out, SVB publishes a great report on the state of markets for the innovation economy. What does your data show uh, for unicorns and the future of them? Yeah, so, you know, despite... There are a few notable collapses this year. Um, Unicorns are generally well positioned to weather this storm since a lot of these companies loaded up on capital 
2021 and 2022 and have really since cut costs and are prioritizing profit uh, profitability. Um, and when our data team last looked at the data in August, about 80% of these companies had two or more years of runway um, at their current burn rate. So they're definitely positioned to, to weather through this storm. Um, but it's important to note that while you know, few unicorns um, are failing. There are really few that are being formed. We saw only about 25 established in the first three quarters of this year, uh, compared to nearly 170 in 2022. Wow, that is that is fascinating, mm-hmm. um, and and says a lot about the market. Um, so, you know, we're in this game as VCs to not just have unicorns and. Um, you know, retweet uh, articles about our companies becoming unicorns. We want to get that moment of an exit. And so there are typically two options, IPO or M&A, right? Acquisitions. Let's first start. What what do we see for IPOs in the near future? Yeah, I mean, there is, I think, definitely the beginning of this year an optimism that the IPO window would fully reopen uh, maybe in the second half of this year. But now we kind of ultimately saw that fall a little short with few VC-backed companies completing a listing. Um, and actually a large reason for this is the poor performance of many tech companies that went public in 2021, whose valuations are averaging about 50% of their IPO price. So that's really contributing kind of the drop in valuations for later stage companies um, and preventing a lot of them from wanting to exit. Um, and then also just in conversations with some growth investors and late stage investors who are really hearing that their expectation for the IPO market to reopen is now looking like the half of the second half of 2024, even Q1 of 2025. And what about um, M&A activity? Yeah. So, I mean, to no surprise, it's definitely a buyer's market um, as runway kind of declines for these companies and companies struggles to raise. Uh, many are forced into a soft landing, such as an M&A, or will face bankruptcy and liquidation. Um, so expectation that we'll see an increase in M&A activity and continue to see that. Um, and SV actually has an internal index that's tracking troubled companies with less than 12 months of runway, high cash burn, low growth. Um, and numbers have surpassed pre-boom time levels. So this can serve as an indicator that we'll see an increase in M&A activity in the coming months. Rachel, you're such a good partner here in the venture ecosystem. For folks who are interested in getting in touch with Rachel and SVB, feel free to email her at rwaddle, W-A-B-D-E-L-L, at svb.com. And now back to our LP interview. Shifting gears to your model, um, a large audience that listens to our pod are uh, allocators, both experienced as well as those interested in allocating into this asset class. Um, could you speak to, first of all, like the decision to have a hybrid model of both mm-hmm. direct and fund? Um, and then I have some follow up questions on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, generally speaking, um, I guess fund of funds typically, like pure play fund of funds typically didn't get the sexiest rap, you know, from people. It's a very broad based way to index uh, an asset class. And when you look at the performance data, it performs in line with what you'd expect of the indexes. Um, You know, people are going to VC funds to outperform 
the index. And I think when you marry di diversified portfolio, which you could argue is a risk mitigator, um, and you marry that with asymmetric upside of, of direct investing, um, you just get a more appealing product and a, a product that's math is, is more favorable to what the average LP is looking for. Um, you can oftentimes invest in things and try and cherry pick certain co-invest opportunities, but then you get stuck in the adverse selection conundrum. What if I'm only picking dogs in the co-invest side, you know, and I think it's easier to have a, a blended vehicle of sorts than to try and basically make your own quasi direct portfolio by by cherry picking the co-invest that that you want out of fund commitments. Um, you also see opportunity funds come out of direct VCs, and that's like a similar um, it's a similar way. It's obviously not blended. The other thing though with that is that sometimes I ask myself: Is a pre seed VC? Um, going to be able to execute an opportunity fund strategy at the A, B, and, and even potentially C stage. Um, so I think being able to just bundle what you know you're good at, you get the asymmetry on, on the direct side can be a lot more appealing to, to LPs that want a diverse exposure to an asset class. That's a, that's a huge differentiator from what I've seen mostly, especially with fund of funds, having a direct investment is mostly just co-investment. Mm -hmm. Like they, they limit themselves just to whatever their fund managers have invested in. Mm -hmm. And so this blended approach, what do you feel that your team and expertise has? I can assume what it is, but what do you think that allocators who do choose to have more of this blended approach, what's the you know, what, what's the type of expertise they need to have in house to be able to do that successfully? Yeah. I mean, also on that note, generally speaking, you need to be able to re underwrite these deals, um, for whatever that entry is and understand that where you're investing now is, is you investing directly. It's not exposure on a fund level, uh, you know, through the look through at the earliest stages, you have to be able to have sensibilities around if I'm entering here at the A, this is going to be my cost base, or I'm entering here at the B, this is going to be my cost basis. Can I underwrite this for the outcomes that work for uh, whatever your strategy may be um, when doing so? And the addition is that the asymmetry on the information side you get from being an LP in general into funds like can really help you make informed decision making when you decide to go direct, um, especially if you're you're investing in something from a look through you may be invested in. Uh, I see a lot of LPs that will get co-invest opportunities. They'll take the, the memo that gets circulated to them. They'll make a decision off of that. I think the real way to be doing it is you as an LP, whether you're in, in an individual, an institutional allocator, you need to be actively managing for that portfolio. Obviously, venture is a lagging indicator. But you're in this privileged position where you're getting so much asymmetric information and being able to track these businesses from the inside that you should be building that conviction over that 12 to 18 to 24 month runway window prior to these subsequent financing so that when you do decide to evaluate that, um, you've had the past... 12 to 24 months to really build that conviction independently of whatever conviction the manager you may be a LP into is building. Um, and I think that's an important differentiator is just generally when wearing an LP hat is if you're going to go direct, 
build your own conviction. Do not rely on the GPs to build the conviction for you. Um, you have the insights to do so. You're getting your LP updates. Um, you can talk to those founders directly. Um, and I encourage everyone um, that wears an LP hat to do so. Any other advice for allocators given the climate today? Um, it's tough. You know, I talk to a lot of my seniors and, you know, they tell me that this is the toughest environment in the past 15 to 20 years. But I think raw talent is abundant in both the manager space and the, the founder space. And don't shy away from what you want to do. Uh, there's a reason you have this thesis. Uh, you have to persevere, whether you got to augment your fund size to, to get up and running. Um, don't let it be a deterrent. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. On that side, it's tough. There's capital is getting increasingly more competitive. Um, efficiencies on the allocator side are like just rapidly improving, especially with, with all the the tools you can leverage for crunching big data and analytics that help make decisions faster. I think you're going to have to differentiate yourself, whether it's, it's strategy-based, whether it's methodology-based, process-based, um, experience-based of the, the team of the GPs. I think you've got you to gotta be able to articulate just why you're going to win what you do best. Uh, and you have to prove also that, that you can maintain that discipline to execute on, on what your thesis is. And I think that's gonna be a big thing, is that you'll get a lot of people that move with the markets to kind of, especially if you're fundraising. Um, and I don't think that's the right approach because it shows a lack of conviction in what you came to the table with. So I think if you're building conviction around something, um, pursue it, be hell-bent on pursuing it. Um, you know, ignore the noise, show that you can can execute your strats. If there's certain LPs that are coming to you now and, and it's not the right time, just prove them that it should have been the right time when you go out for fun two or fun three. What do you think allocators, um, it, it seems like the, you know, the tides are definitely the, the tides are, are, are changing, right? And the uh, venture asset class, um, and a lot of people will be going to market in 24 and 25. Mm -hmm. How should LPs manage this process? How should they take advantage of it as well? You gave some great yeah, advice for the GPs just now, but for sure. Yeah. On the LP side, I think it, you know, there's a lot of different types of LPs and whether if you're looking at established managers, uh, it's a lot different the lens you're looking through than if you're looking at emerging managers and you need to have sensibilities around the differences in them. Um, also, you need to be very aware of the actual asset class itself. If you're a new LP to VC, um, most likely you haven't held something that's basically illiquid for eight to 12 years. Um, it's not that common that you hold assets that are that illiquid. I mean, even hard assets are, are, are relatively liquid. Um, so I think that's another thing is understanding that this is a long-term asset class and your idea of you may see managers uh, producing meaningful DPI in year six. You may see ones producing meaningful DPI in year eight. You may see ones producing meaningful DPI in year 10. 
And I think that it's an absolute value game, whether the DPI comes year six, year eight, year 10, or year 11, even year 12. Um, performance is performance, and I'm looking for absolute performance, as I think a lot of other LPs are. And it's getting them comfortable with these types of, of dynamics. Even the way you evaluate managers, like a lot of LPs are not comfortable emerging manager investing because they feel like there's lack of track record, there's, there's angel track record, there's a lot of variables that go into it, and you're more closely underwriting an emerging manager to the way you'd underwrite a pre-seed investment, especially if it's things like fund ones, where obviously there's a set of qualitative data. I don't think there's any manager going out to raise with no track record. Um, that being said, you're underwriting heuristics a lot. You're underwriting intangibles. You're underwriting the, the inherent drive. Um, another thing with emerging managers that are quite interesting is the, the intrinsic motivations to perform are a lot higher. There's way less complacency mm. in where they are. Um, if they don't perform, they don't raise a point to. Um, and I think being able to spot characteristics in managers that speak to that ability to persevere and work just relentlessly hard uh, to perform for their LPs is extremely important. Um, and I think new entrants to the asset class will have a hard time underwriting for things like that versus someone that may be on a fun five plus. Where do you think with all those trends, what are your predictions kind of like with the macro venture asset class overall? Yeah. More funds, less funds. I think there's an ebb and flow. I don't think we're at a place yet where we've seen the full effects of the macro shift yet. I think we will see a lot of this start to manifest in 24. Um, but I kind of parallel to like restaurants in New York when one closes, another one pops up the next day. I don't think there's going to be any shortage of new managers popping up. I don't think there's going to be any shortage of new great managers popping up, uh, either. And I even think on the, on the entrepreneur side, a lot of these guys at the earliest stages, they're looking for someone that understands their business and wants to be on this cap table and help. And I think that especially non-leader, co-lead emerging managers have an advantage to being able to work their way and hustle their way onto some of the best cap tables. Just sort of top level, when you think about the future of venture capital, what comes to mind? Yeah, there's a lot of things I see. I see liquidity becoming more abundant, contrary to popular belief. There's a lot of uh, different mechanisms for liquidity to be generated that are being built right now. Um, VC is getting more and more democratized. You see it with a lot of these platform plays. You see it with the difference in 501Bs, 501Cs, the ability for, for non-accredited people to participate in these things, crowdfunding, DAOs, um, platforms where you can buy secondaries as an accredited uh, investor. And there's a, quite a lot of activity on them. You even see a derivatives market for, for VC showing up as well that has traction. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of things going on right now. You have regulatory landscape changing, which may deter new managers as compliance becomes heavier, as you're going to have to offer more transparency. Um, the macro obviously has an effect when, when there's less of an abundance of capital. Capital becomes increasingly more competitive. Uh, if you follow the money, you'll see that it goes back towards very established managers during those periods, yet 
Conversely, the emerging managers tend to outperform in those same periods if you look at historical data. Um, so I think there's just a lot of a lot of evolution occurring in the asset class. It's becoming way more mainstream than it ever has been. I also think the globalization of VC is still only at like some of its earliest stages. I think emerging markets are going to become increasingly more interesting on the private side. Um, you know, it's been a narrative for a while. They've had also deterrence on liquidity side because the United States obviously has the most robust capital markets and liquidity environments. Um, but you're in a globalized world that doesn't have a linear trajectory and, and, and markets are going to market and they're going to need to find ways to support local businesses. They're going to need to find ways to grow their GDP. And that's going to start at, at a local level. Are you seeing more U.S. managers investing internationally, international markets, or, um, or also considering, you know, taking meetings with some of those folks who are based in these markets? Yeah, I have. I've seen U.S. managers start exploring, uh, you know, a lot more international markets. They're still predominantly U.S. investors because I think a lot of people especially in this industry, know that without that local context, um, it's quite hard to be successful solely in a foreign market if you don't have that. Um, that being said, a lot of people do have boots on the ground in the markets that they do um, deploy into, even if they're U.S.-based firms. And I, I do think you'll see an increase of, of opportunistic buckets carved out that do tackle other parts of the world outside of their core geography. Any parting thoughts for our audience of other allocators and um, emerging managers? Um, look, I think that we're in, we're in a very interesting time right now for venture. I think it's one of the best times to, to be an allocator, to be an investor, to be an LP. I think it's a tough time uh, to be a GP, an entrepreneur. But I think that if you can survive in this market, um, that it's going to be a big testament to what you're building and that people can get behind you and want to back you in this environment. And I think no matter how small the win is on that side, you should celebrate it because you're in a, a period that just, it, we've been numb to it for the past 12 plus years in terms of that being the macro. So I think that any small win in this environment, you should celebrate and you should be proud of yourself and you should just keep tackling it with absolute perseverance. I love that. Gratitude, gratefulness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Conviction. And acknowledging, yeah, acknowledging yeah. that success. For sure. Um, Sam, thanks again for uh, joining us today on Swimming with Allocators. Appreciate yeah, I you. appreciate you guys. See you later, Allocator. After Portfolio Tile, Investing with a Smile. <laughs>